Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about celebrities, sex work, and how to be an ally to sex workers. I also share my interview with Ali Oops, Head of Production and Intimacy Director at Afterglow, a new porn company focused exclusively on women's pleasure. We talk about porn addiction, what makes ethical porn ethical, and why we should all be paying for our porn. If you want to check them out and all of the other amazing resources I share here on the show, then check out www.leatidy.com and click on podcast. But first, today in sex. Let's talk about Montero, Call Me By Your Name. You know, Lil Nas X's most recent song that has basically like broken the internet and has started so many conversations about art and sexual expression over the last week. I'm not going to lie, I have rewatched it many times now. I've looked at the lyrics and watched it again. And I am all at once finding it super hot and super disturbing. Okay, and not disturbing because it's like oozing with sexuality, but because it's sending up a big middle finger to people who deny that gay folks exist in society. Not only is this a nod to stripping and sex work in the video itself, more on that later in the episode, but also Lil Nas X has come out saying that it is really hard to pole dance. So kudos. But what I find disturbing is that we still need to have these conversations about queer folks existing in society. And intersectional queer folks, BIPOC queer folks, folks with disabilities who are queer, folks of all different ethnicities, religions, backgrounds, socioeconomic status, queer folks exist in every walk of life. And Montero, well, this is protest art to say, hey, I'm here. And I was listening to the Savage Lovecast the other day, and Dad Savage talked about this incredible ability to turn anger Anger at being stereotyped, at being marginalized, at being lied to as gay men about what it means to be a gay man in society and what such narrow scripts we prescribe to gay men in Western culture and to turn that anger into art, especially into break the internet kind of art. Now, I'm not the authority on gay men, on black gay men, on, on what those lived experiences are and how folks move through the world. I can only talk from my own experience as a bisexual woman who has had to convince far too many people that yes, bisexuality exists, and yes, there are queer people born into every type of family and situation. So as a queer woman, please go watch Montero, listen to the Savage Lovecast, and I am so interested to hear what your thoughts were. I mean, I'm not interested in hearing about like the Fox News opinions on what was happening, but... You, as listeners, I would love to hear your thoughts. But since you are here right now, you should probably stick around to hear my interview with Ali Oops. Now, there's actually a lot of overlap between what we talk about in terms of respecting performers for their work and how we ethically consume sexually explicit material. But first, let's get to your calls. Hi, Leah. Um, my name is Anna Marie, and I have a question for your podcast. I follow a lot of... Um, save the children type of Instagram accounts and a, a lot about children who have been trafficked in the past. They posted something about Cardi B's performance from the Grammys. I didn't actually see the performance, but the screenshot made it look a little bit like a strip club. And um, I know Cardi B is very 
proud of the fact that she used to be a stripper. And they basically said that this was not sex positive and this is not something we should be supporting. And my question for you is, how can uh, we be an ally for both those who want to be in the sex industry and be sex workers, as well as allies for those who have been trafficked? And if we're supporting one more than the other, is it offsetting the other? Thank you so much for that question. Uh, You know, a lot of it will actually be answered in my interview with Allie later in the episode, but there are just a few things that I want to flag and I want to talk about right now. So first, Cardi B, like Lil Nas X and lots of other celebrities, as Allie discusses in her interview, they're making their nod to sex workers in their music and in their art. And it definitely, it upsets some folks and it has folks calling out saying that it isn't sex positive, that it's degrading, or that it's sending the wrong message around sexual expression. First, I just, I just want to share like what I understand by a sex positive approach, what that means to me and my work. And, and this is from one of my mentors, Kristen Gilbert at Options for Sexual Health. Uh, she's really helped inform my understanding of sex positivity. So let's start there and then I'll get into the rest of your question. So for me, sex positivity, this is coming from the belief that sexuality is a healthy, natural, and a wonderful force in the world. And in that, there's this lens of consent, there's pleasure and well-being. So it's not negating the experiences like some of those negative experiences that happen to people or saying that everyone needs to be having sex and needs to be talking openly about sex in order to be sex positive. It's just saying we need to understand consent, We need to understand pleasure and well-being when we're talking about sexuality. Now, sex positivity, it's also, it's it's like a framework uh, for us to share information and to address sex negative culture head on. And for me, this really means addressing inequality and recognizing intersectionality. It also provides the means for us to celebrate sexuality in safety, and it's welcoming all different expressions of sexuality. This means allowing space for asexuality, abstinence, celibacy, trauma, diverse sexual preferences, beliefs, and sex work, of course. On the next episode of The Love Doctor, I'm actually getting more into sex positivity and consent with one of my favorite people of all time, Dr. Charlotte Lopey, so look forward to that. But I just want to say that within this definition, consensual sex work is absolutely a part of that, and people have the choice to express their sexuality however they choose whether that's stripping or as an erotic dancer, as an escort, as someone who is a porn performer, in all sorts of different ways. But there is a huge difference between sex work and sex trafficking. And I really, Caller, I love how you frame it around being allies to both sex workers and those who have survived and come out of sex trafficking. And I think we first need to, we need to separate out these conversations because they are very different things. So we think about sex work. These individuals who work in all sorts of different ways, but the primary thing that's a part of it is that it is consensual and that it is a job. It is a profession. Also, as a part of it, I just, I really want to acknowledge the violence that happened a few weeks ago in the Atlanta area and how six of the eight people killed were Asian women who worked in spas. And I'm bringing it up here not to say that these women were sex workers, but even the idea that someone might be a sex worker can be incredibly dangerous. Now, I want to say that preliminary information has indicated that the shootings, they could relate to the suspect's claim of a potential sex addiction. And the man who murdered these women, he told investigators that he saw the spas as 
a temptation that he wanted to eliminate. And this is atrocious. And this is clearly connected to white supremacy and to racism. And it's also related to how stigmatizing sex work still is and why it is so important that we talk about health, safety, and the rights of sex workers. So let's talk about sex trafficking as something that is different. Unfortunately, there are still high rates of sex trafficking happening, and especially this is happening with young, vulnerable folks who people target. You know, if we're not having open conversations around sex, if we're not having open conversations about boundaries and knowing our bodies and being safe, then we're not preparing people to to be able to set those boundaries, to know when someone is manipulating them. So I'm not sure exactly who you follow um, on Instagram, other people that you follow. One of them that's really active in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is near where I live, uh, is called Children of the Street. And they focus to help folks who have been victims of sex trafficking. It's all about supporting people and helping them get their lives back together. Now, I would recommend if you aren't following Children of the Street, I will leave them linked in the episode description for you to check out. But one of the things that they recommend in terms of being an ally or stopping sex trafficking from happening is A, having really open conversations about it and also knowing what the signs are if a friend or a family member or someone that we care about may be targeted or someone is trying to groom them into into being trafficked. Right? So it's making sure that we're having honest conversations with our friends, making sure that if they are pulling away from people, if they've started a new relationship, or that person is demanding commitments early on in the relationship, one of the things that people will do if they are grooming people into sex trafficking is try and separate them from their support networks, from their friends, from their families. And they'll also shower them with really expensive gifts to kind of lure them in. So it's one thing to have these conversations, but to also... Be aware of what's happening in other people's lives, especially young folks who might not have the vocabulary or might not have the skills to differentiate between who is someone who is looking out for them and actually cares for them and who is someone who is manipulating them. Ali talks more about how do we support sex workers in the interview itself, but one of the main things that she talks about is following sex workers on Instagram, on Twitter, going to their websites, hearing from them what they need in order to feel safe in their work, and also giving them a platform to share their voices, to share their experiences. I think it's about recognizing that folks can enter into sex work and they are empowered to do so. They are choosing to do so and that they are engaging in something that pays them decent money Because if we're only hearing these highly stereotyped and polarizing views around sex work, then we're not actually hearing from the folks involved about what they need. So caller, the last thing that I want to say is people are going to consume sexually explicit material, whether it's through porn or whether it's watching a show at the Grammys. Sexuality is such a huge part of uh, Western culture and society of like sharing it on stage and being really open and expressive about it and that could be a really wonderful thing but it's wonderful if we know how to think about it it sounds like these folks who you follow who are fighting for the rights of children making sure that folks don't get sex trafficked that's really important work but cardi b talking about how she used to be a stripper or having a really like sexy like dance at the grammys That's not telling these youth that they should then go out to become strippers. If they want to, they can, absolutely. But 
it's just conflating an issue as soon as we have sexuality that is expressed outside of these really narrow scripts in our society, right? If it's not within a monogamous relationship, if it's not within the confines of in our own homes, in our beds, sexually expressing ourselves or having an intimate experience, if it happens to be on stage or be performative, then people kind of freak out. So in terms of being an ally, it means listening to both people who are sex workers and people who have been sex trafficked to different things. Just saying that the people who have been involved in that, they're going to be the ones who are going to tell you their experiences, what they need and how best to support them. So for us, it's making sure that we're listening. It's following different accounts. It's following different people so they can share the resources. And then they can tell us, folks who are allies, who want to be better allies, what we can do to help them on their journeys and protect their rights. Again, Ali gets more into this into our interview. And one more thing before we get into that. Ali tells us that porn is performance, not sex education. And I want you to know that porn isn't supposed to be sex education. It's, it's entertainment. It's something to get us off and then move on with the rest of our days. But because we have a serious lack of comprehensive sex ed, so many people rely on porn to teach us about sex. But she talks about all of that and more in our interview, and I am so excited to share that with you now. So here it is. So hi, Allie. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good, actually. I've been uh, really looking forward to this conversation because one of the most popular episodes from uh, season one of The Love Doctor was the one that says, am I addicted to porn? Which is a real question that I got from someone. And so many people clicked on it. And there's that real fear. So I'm just, I'm so glad that you're here because you are far more of an expert than I am. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah. I mean, porn is a hot topic. Everyone, not everyone, but nearly everyone engages in it or has engaged with it at some point in their life. And we don't talk about it. So people are thirsty for that content and that knowledge and that understanding of this really important aspect of their life. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious even how that episode went. I hope you debunked the porn addiction myth, but who knows? Yes, that. I did. I was like, why are we labeling it as an addiction, you know? And, and me being me, I cited some recent research about how it's like, well, that framing isn't actually very helpful for us at all, right? Because then we're, you know, we're just keep pathologizing it as a problem, whereas really... I don't necessarily mean it's it's a problem with being addicted to porn. It's what kind of porn are we consuming? So maybe maybe that's a good way to start. So tell me a bit about what it is that you do and why are you so passionate about it? So right now I'm the head of production and intimacy director at Afterglow, which is a new porn company that is focused on women's pleasure and telling women's stories, but also it's just high quality high production value, very consent and conversation focused and has elements of realism that hopefully you can identify with in your own life and, and tells lots of different stories from lots of different women, whether they're trans or cis or horny sluts or romantic monogamous 
babes. So we try to really cover, yeah, a lot of different grounds. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my current job. Um, I've been working in and around sex work, sexuality, and gender for nearly a decade now um, in many different ways and roles that sort of slowly led me to porn and sex work. Um, I started off at the Trevor Project, which is the leading LGBT organization um, for suicide prevention and crisis intervention for LGBT youth in America. So I started off my career really teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation and slowly through that start seeing this huge gap in in our sex work education, in our pleasure education. Um, And that leads me down a a spiraling hole that I'm still deeper in than ever. And I've unlearned and learned so much about myself and this community on that process. And And I hope I continue to learn and unlearn a lot about myself in the next 10 years. Um, But yeah, I think for me, ultimately, how I'm passionate about it is I believe that sex work is the core of sexual liberation. I think horophobia is the root of so much of our oppression and none of us will be free from it until sex workers have rights and are treated as equals. And so that's really where I come from is a very performer, uh, sex work centered ideology in everything I do from sex education to Hollywood sets to porn sets. So yeah, sex worker rights, sex worker voices, that is really what drives me every day to wake up and and to do this work. Um, There's so much work to be done. Absolutely. Right. And and it's something that maybe we're hearing more about now kind of in, in mainstream popular culture and things, but it definitely has been something that has been so silenced and marginalized. And even like our laws across in the U.S. and in Canada have just really restricted the rights of sex workers and and made the job really dangerous in many ways by not having access um, to to be able to uh, promote yourself safely, to be able to have control over who your clients are and things like that. And I just, yeah, it's a conversation that I'm, I'm really excited to be having with with you. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like visibility is such an interesting thing, right? Like we're seeing sex workers so much more in pop culture, whether it's through social media, whether it's through um, Hollywood is doing like hustlers or other sort of mainstream big budget sex work stories. And then all the way to music videos, how many artists have we seen in the music industry in the last year release their nods at dancing or stripping, um, Beyonce shouting out OnlyFans. So we're seeing this huge wave. And then from TV shows like Euphoria or these different, you know, sex work characters pop up. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call Euphoria a sex work storyline because I think when young people are engaging in sexual labor, it is not sex work if you are under a legal age. But Anyways, we're seeing lots of different depictions. And so I think it's easy for us to think like, wow, things are better, things are getting better. But what we know about visibility with marginalized identities is the more visibility you have, the increase of violence that comes to try to fight that group from gaining any type of power or rights. So, I mean, even in the last, you know, three weeks alone, we've seen a huge uproar of anti-sex from the right and from the left, from everyone sort of here in America, but also this affects Canada, obviously, as well. Um, So it's, yeah, it's such an interesting time where we're gaining visibility while our rights are actually being taken away in front of our eyes. So um, it's really makes it so important to have these conversations and, and to to jump in and 
and help people learn more about this community that, like I said, we want to know more about. We want to talk more about. We're thirsty for these conversations and they're long overdue. So I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So there's there's a few things I'm going to unpack a, a bit later in the episode because there's, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. But the first thing is I kind of want to know a bit more about your role as um, as like an intimacy director as well. And and you said that you've you've studied um, intimacy coordination with Ita O'Brien. So and famously worked on sex education, which I think is a really it's a popularized view that just gets people talking about sexual health, which I love. And I just what I love is talking to people and what this podcast helped me do is talking to people in like that sexual health education work field when people think that the only job that you can do in, you know, really is to be a sex educator. That's one of the like main only jobs. So I didn't even know that this job existed. And I'm like, wow, I want that job. So can you tell me a bit more about like, what, what does that role entail? So Ida is like so amazing and inspiring. I did a two day training with her in London um, and she's just so warm and welcoming and just a really special and talented person. And I have so much more to learn in my intimacy coordination journey, but really what it comes down to for me and what I have in common with intimacy coordinators is an intimacy coordinator is there to keep everyone on set safe, specifically the actors, but also that can mean if you're working like Ida worked on I May Destroy You, an HBO show that discusses a lot of different triggering topics. So if that's sort of the path you're on too, it's about keeping everyone on your set safe. You have no idea what's gonna trigger crew members or actors or when you're working in these really hard areas like sex isn't always a fun story to tell um so while intimacy coordinators are keeping people safe a big part of their job is you know using sex to continue and further the story that we are engaging in sex education is a great example of how they use sex to tell stories in in that show um, and i think i may destroy you does that really well in sort of the polar opposite world of consent violations and boundary breaking and sexual assault. So yeah, you're really there to keep everyone safe. And you're also there creatively, depending on the director you're working with, depends on how much you know creative power you have there. But you're really choreographing those scenes to further the story along. And, and once you sort of wake up to that lens of intimacy coordinators, like Ida, everything Ida touches turns to gold. Like she is just so talented at this work. Um, but once you start looking at these old school Hollywood movies where they clearly didn't have intimacy coordinators, suddenly you're like, whoa, this sex scene is so awkward or the ways in which these characters are having sex doesn't make sense. So like, obviously there's a different sexual energy you bring to like a one night stand than you bring to a marriage of 10 years where you don't have a sex life or you bring to, like we talked about different boundaries or in sex education, like adolescent sexuality and how awkward and weird and funny and bizarre that can be as kids come into their own sexuality. So, so that's sort of like intimacy coordination as an umbrella of a job is you're really there to keep people safe and tell really awesome, compelling stories, um, which can, can take the form of consent exercises to choreography, to acting exercises and warmups and like just laughter and play. So it, it is a really fun role. My work, like when I went in to train, my intention is to bring this work over primarily to the adult industry. So that looks a bit 
different in the adult industry being that like obviously in a Hollywood set you have like garments and safety and SAG rules to protect the actors and make sure um, they're physically safe so you're almost sort of minimizing any kind of sexual energy between the performers while bringing out I mean you you have a degree in theater so you understand this completely how to help the actors bring out a character and not feel like their sexuality is the one on the chopping block or the one being judged or like you really which you know often traditionally it seems like directors leave actors sort of on their own which makes them feel like it has to be their sexuality they bring so we bring all that fun like exercises and depersonalization and we we try to really separate sort of the sexual energy as this separate thing through like you know garment blockers and different different ways and you know there's different clauses with nudity depending on actors contracts so important that's obviously different because people are actually having sex and so you're engaging in a different kind of negotiation around sexual energy and safety and consent um so but there's really fun things to bring from that right like uh learning about choreography learning about warm-up exercises helping people tell a story through characters which makes so much sense for afterglow when we're we're doing narrative driven plots um, and, you know, porn performers aren't famous for being the best actors in the world. So there's a lot to learn from, from these different acting exercises to help people get into the mood. But it's also just about keeping them safe, keeping them well fed, keeping them, um, making sure their yes, no, maybe lists are reviewed long before we make it to set all the way to being on set and are continued to be respected on set. It's also about reading nonverbal communication and picking up on maybe tension or exhaustion or you know non-verbal sexual cues that you know you can step in and ask for breaks or process or sort of break out so you're just another set of eyes um, really there with the intention to make sure everyone feels good and is having a good time and sort of my relationship to Hollywood is that I consult on sex work storylines specifically and help cast sex workers in sex work storylines in Hollywood. So this is a desperately overdue role. The sex work stories told in Hollywood are atrocious. They are offensive. They are, it is insane to me that in 2020, they could even put out some of the stories that they are putting out with absolutely no checking in with the community who's affected by these things. And when we tell bad stories about marginalized communities, they lead to violence. They lead to oppression, they lead to stigma. And so it's been really fun to come on Hollywood sets, um, like music videos that are doing a, shooting at a strip club. I'm like, here's five strippers, real life strippers who, you know, maybe aren't working in quarantine right now. Uh, so let's hire them on to dance in the background rather than just a backup dancer actor. Or what does it mean for a Hollywood set to donate part of their, uh, budget to sex work nonprofits to help the community in which they are benefiting and gaining from and what does it mean to tell those stories accurately and well and how do we avoid negative stereotypes and negative tropes so intimacy directing and coordinating sort of like weave in and out of all these worlds um but but ultimately it's about keeping people safe and telling compelling good stories about sex definitely well and i think it's something that folks would you wouldn't necessarily think of that connection in terms of of porn and how important that would be uh, in the porn industry and in sex work to be like let's have someone here because you know as as it is on a Hollywood set as you were saying there's 
there's that degree of separation where this is, you know, your job and your and and that's your profession. But then now in like the huge conglomerate world of like porn and what we have access to now, so much of it is people can upload whatever they want as opposed to professionals getting paid for their work. And there's such a difference in when you're viewing that and there's still so much taboo around it so I wonder if we could get into kind of like intimacy coordination but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around the difference between regular I'm using bunny ears here people if you're listening regular porn versus ethical porn and how we really need to emphasize that ethical aspect which I see so much in in your description of intimacy coordination yeah um I think all porn is regular porn and I think to me, porn is one or more consenting adults engaging in sexual activity on camera. So it's like quite a wide, it covers a lot of stuff, right? And, and so when I think about ethical porn, I'm often talking about labor rights. Uh, I'm talking about labor rights specifically that center sex workers and porn performers who are the most vulnerable people who engage in the porn industry. And so many different people have many different definitions of ethical porn. This is a personal or, you know, this is one camp, I guess, of people who talk about ethical porn. And so why I, why I make this distinction is any set could be an ethical porn set. It could be browsers.com could be an ethical porn set. Um, an indie set between two performers doing content trade with no company involved can be an ethical porn set. Um, just like, you know, in feminist woman-made companies can be ethical porn sets, just like the opposite. All of those places can also have unethical sets and unethical practices, which we've seen from feminist companies marketing as ethical. When we kind of pull the curtain back, there's a lot of different exploitation and gaslighting happening on those sets. Um, and so I think the mainstream thinks about ethical porn as... Uh, what they're seeing they, they it's like a it's like a visual thing they're like what am I seeing back so if it has good lighting and if it centers everyone's pleasure and if it has a storyline then it's ethical and and I really want to dispel this myth and and I understand where it comes from because I used to believe that too and then I got more into it and I was like just because it's pretty and just because you know it might feature people we don't normally see doesn't mean these people were treated fairly or equitably or well. Mm -hmm. And so, so when I think about labor rights and I think about what that looks like on a set, it looks like fair payment. It looks like um, respecting people's consent and boundaries. It looks like the health and comfort of the performers on set. Are we equalizing the power or are we uh, playing and profiting off of the inequality of power on set? It, it looks like privacy and respect. Are you outing sex workers' legal names on social media after their shoot? Are you telling people in your community their legal names? That's sort of a different thing with outing. And yeah, so there's a privacy and respect element that, um, that they're treated with dignity and respect and, and they're bound, that kind of goes into boundaries and consent as well. And yeah, just leveling power, which is a big thing intimacy coordinators are there on all sets, on all sex scenes are there to do. And this is really important and porn as well. Who are the stakeholders on these sets and how are they utilizing that power to get other things from the performers? This might look like um, if performers speak out against what 
like about what happened to them on a set that they might not ever be able to work for that company again. So, so how do we, how do we allow space for people to say what happened here isn't okay and I can still keep working and keep my job. We don't have that really in the porn industry right now from feminist porn companies to mainstream porn companies, people live in fear of these companies and what it means to speak out against them and what that will mean for their career. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Afterglow, like this is, this is my role is like, how do we build ethical sets at Afterglow? And I think there it's about centering sex workers and performers safety and well-being every step of the way while also telling hot, beautiful stories from a woman or femme perspective. And so, I think there's probably a different conversation that we can get into about like what the effects of different types of porn can be on people and and I get why the consumer is focused on that but I think when we're trying to consume ethically which is so common now like we want to have our organic produce and we want to have our clothes that aren't made in exploitative work environments. Like we're all trying to like buy local, be ethical, consume ethical. And I think across the board, usually that comes back to labor rights and it comes back to the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable. And how do we equalize that and make sure those people are being treated with the utmost respect and being paid fairly. Um, so those are things that we think about and we brainstorm about. And I know at Afterglow, we're rolling out a handful of different programs um, to create abundance in the porn industry and to create among porn performers. So like an example of this is uh, often in porn, it's you, typical practice in the, in the history of porn that uh, you get paid out one time uh, for being on set. And then there are no residuals, there are no there are no payments afterwards. So really? there's a few key, yeah. There's a few key examples of this. There's Deep Throat, the most probably famous porn of all time. I, I don't know what year, maybe the early 70s, late 60s. Um, you know, that woman got paid out, I think less than 500 bucks. I bet it was closer to 50 or 100. And it becomes the most famous porn of all time. She never sees another cent from that. And you see that in a lot of her narrative about her relationship to porn. And sort of the modern 2020 example is Mia Khalifa, who you know has a lot of controversy around her, but her story goes, I performed in porn for three months, made you know, 10, 20,000 bucks, becomes the most famous porn star in the world and never sees another cent from those porn companies. So, um, I mean, she got famous and she makes money from her fame. And there's a lot of controversy in the porn industry around Mia Khalifa in particular, but I do think that there's an issue with abundance here. And there's an issue, this is not typical in Hollywood. If your film or your TV show goes viral, like actors get paid for that, right? Or if it lives on forever, like Star Trek, like you get paid for that forever. So Afterglow, these are the things we think about when we're sitting at the table. How do we create abundance forever? How do we break down these sort of practices that exist and haven't been re-examined in 40 years? And how do we continue to make money flow and appreciate these people that we're building our company off of? And if we're successful, they're successful. And so these are. this is just one example of the kinds of things that I think ethical porn should be thinking about. About. We should be sitting at the table, re-examining how we relate to sex workers and how we bring abundance to this industry and appreciate the people who are, you know, they're doing the physical labor and bringing us all pleasure and joy. How do we treat them as whole humans? Yeah. So Africa sent me uh, lip service, one of your videos. And then what I, what I love is watching that and then watching the behind the scenes 
uh, video with the performers and just having, you know, a very honest discussion of like, okay, so now that you've enjoyed yourself and you've watched the porn that I made, now you get to hear from me about like, okay, like I got to have a full meal on set. And it's so interesting how for me, I actually wrote a whole section, like a whole like academic like article about the importance of food and making people feel like valued and seen and like, and you know, and recognizing them as like people. I'm like, like yeah, like we all want to like eat. If you're at work, like you need something to keep you going. So I, it was just such a, to me, it just felt like such a fresh new lens to be able to watch the the work and the high quality work that they're creating and that Afterglow is creating. But then to have that that piece behind it to say, you know, this we're going to be more transparent about what this process was actually like. And, you know, and one of the actors talking, one of the performers, pardon me, using uh, like knee pads and stuff like that. I was like, oh, yeah, I had never like thought of that important like in the back of my mind I was like yeah like that like he was on the floor for a while I can imagine like how uncomfortable would that be so having that conversation it was also just very amusing and lighthearted. at the same time I just loved that that thing and 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 what I want to talk to you about as well is how so many people will consume porn and from you know especially if, if you're not educating young people about where to get their porn from where to get ethical porn and to be able to know the difference they're getting informal sex education from it and we know that that can be really problematic because a lot of the porn that is readily accessible to people it's kind of these you know exceptional bodies doing exceptional things and no wonder one of the like main questions that sex educators get is about penis size because so many people are like is that what mine's supposed to look like so I don't know like I I just I want to know what can we learn from porn but also what do we need to be aware of when we're when we're consuming it yeah I think you bring up so many amazing points and I'm glad you enjoyed that interview because my intention with those interviews are to show the porn performers as whole people Mm -hmm. uh, who have needs and wants and desires and jokes and you know they're we get I'm lucky enough to get to work with them every day on set and see that whole side of them and I think sharing that with the consumer is one part of of the sex work activism that we should all be doing um, is listening to sex workers and their voices but yeah, in terms of, you brought up a really great point, the knee pads, which we're making um, Afterglow knee pads. Uh, Amazing. And we're out to those performers, so hopefully they'll have them by, by that time. But yeah, this is a great point that leads into sex education. Like porn is entertainment, it's media. It should never be sex education. It's not meant to be sex education. And it's not porn's fault that our sex education is bad. Um, porn reflects society just like all media does and, and porn literacy specifically teaches us how to interpret that media with a critical eye, just like media studies teaches us how to interpret movies and TV and articles and podcasts with a critical eye. Um, so when we lack that porn literacy, whether it's like, I mean, I, I think porn literacy should start in sex education with young people, but it should also, because we haven't done it, needs to span for pretty much everyone at this point like adults elder adults you know everyone could benefit from porn literacy um so so i think this this point about knee pads ties into that for me because you don't think about how these performers are on set for eight to 12 hours um their sex looks very different than the sex that we have in our in our lives so a big thing about sex ed that you know porn gets hit with all the time is like condom wearing like 
porn should wear condoms, porn needs to show the world that condoms are normal. And porn performers, on the other hand, not all of them, there's, there's not a universal agreement on this, but they're like, okay, you have sex for nine hours with a condom on, with la like latex condoms are used for like 30 minutes to an hour. It's very different when you're using them for eight, nine hours and there's different chafing, there's different damage that can happen that performers should be able to make the choice around their body about what's best for them. For some performers, that means working with condoms. For some performers, that means relying on our extremely effective testing system and having sex without condoms. So um, when we project our personal life sex ed and the ways in which we interact with sex ed onto porn, we're missing so much of the details of what's happening. So like Oliver in this porn is eating Avery, his girlfriend out, pretty much the whole porn, which is why he ended up getting knee pads because he's literally on his knees for eight hours, you know? And we actually took those knee pads off the DP, the cinematographer, and gave them to Oliver to put on his knees because we, because I, as the intimacy coordinator, began to notice physical nonverbal signs of, you know, the body, you know, the way he was shifting around. And I was like, are you okay? Are you uncomfortable? What can we do to, to make this work? And so um, that's one example of many of how sex education doesn't quite apply to these sets. And, and other things we don't think about, like how, you know, watching two people have sex is quite boring. Like porn performers are entertainers. They're, they're bringing so much to that performance. And that's why we work with these professionals in the industry and not just, not just anyone. So, so there's kind of like a lot, a lot in there on, on my relationship to sex ed and porn, but then there's more, like you brought up um, penis size and like penis obsession. And I, yeah, I think, I think the penis size obsession is much bigger than porn. I think it's built off of racist stereotypes, both small and large external genitals, whether it's like stereotypes about Asian men to black men's bodies and the way in which as a society that is racist has used racist stereotypes and conceptions to project in all sorts of different ways um, these messages onto people with external genitals or people with penises through TV, through media, through songs, through, and you know, these things come from really dark histories of like American and white colonialism. Um, so there's a lot in sort of like the penis size shame and how it's reinforced everywhere. And it's important to remember porn is a reflection of society, um, just like all media is. So they are playing and profiting off of these stereotypes. I mean, there's definitely companies that I don't watch like black.com um, personally, but I understand that these are complicated. Like, do black men want to see themselves represented in porn? Yes. Does black.com as a company owned by a white man that profits off of the racist stereotype of black men having sex with white women? Like, yes, it, it does. So where do we land in all of this, right? And like, what does that mean in all of this? So I think that it's not to say that porn should be immune from critique or that we're doing everything correctly or right or to the utmost standard, but, but I think it's, I think porn gets a lot of the, you're ruining sex, you do this to us, you're doing this to the youth. And it's like, okay, like then go advocate for 
porn literacy and pleasure inclusive sex ed in it for young people like this isn't our job like we're here to entertain we're here for adults we're not here for children we're not here at all with the intention that children should be ever engaging in our content or our work so yeah i don't know and, and when we reduce porn performers to their penis size we perpetuate and we objectify them right like being a famous porn performer with a big like being your penis size isn't gonna like make you famous in porn like you also have to like be respectful and like respect consent you also have to like be able to control your erection for many hours of the day and come often on command you know like there's those aren't easy things to do so so I think that it's important for us to like also see men porn performers as whole people or people with penises who perform in porn as whole people because like the porn I look at all day, like I see trans women with all different sized dicks. I see trans men with all different sized dicks or big dick energy. I see dicks of all different sizes in my world, on my Twitter feed, on the porn I look at. So I always get confused where I'm like, yeah, I guess there's like a lot of this big dick like focus in some mainstream porn. But if you're looking for it, you're gonna find dicks of all different shapes and sizes, all different types of erections. You're gonna find dicks on women. You're gonna find dicks on men, you're gonna find dicks on non-binary people, you're gonna find dicks everywhere in lots of different ways. So you just kind of have to like look for it. Um, and I think partially it's that, I don't blame the consumer for not being able to find that stuff. Like sex work is so censored around social media and advertising. Like you won't be able to access the porn you even want to access because Google won't let us run ads, because Instagram won't let us participate on the platform because Twitter censors and shadow bans us, meaning that your content isn't available even if you have, even if people are following you, they won't see it on their feed. So I don't blame the consumer for this. I think if we want to start seeing more diversity in porn, we have to like zoom out outside the porn industry. Like we're doing the best we can with the amount of roadblockers we have to reach the audience. And we have to think about policy. We have to think about these tech companies and how they're also blocking us from seeing diversity in porn. Sort of like a long-winded answer, but I think like we should continue to seek out literature, books, articles, coaches, therapists, and have a holistic relationship to our sex and sexuality. I think we all should continue to like learn and unlearn, but I think that porn should really be entertainment and that not sex ed, and that's what we should we should accept it as and and not criticize it through that lens. It's not built with a and an like it's not educators build out like learning plans and objectives sex with porn we're just like how do we tell a fun fucking hot story that people jerk off to we're not thinking about educating like 16 year olds it's not what we're doing definitely <laughs> well and I, and I love what you say too is that you you need to widen the lens we need to look at the what are the social systems and those stereotypes in place that are feeding into what we see because it's it's this vicious cycle of that if these stereotypes are present or you know are non-talked about in our sex education in our society well that's going to be reflected in our porn and then that's going to be reflected on what people think like normal sex is like and then it just keeps this the cycle going and i I think it really relates well to thinking about those larger things and what you had said before of kind of like pulling back that veil on what are the arguments that are like against porn and, and just really like painting them with such a, a one stroke saying all porn is this and, and realizing that there's such 
diversity and range in there. And I, so I really appreciate that you sent me that New York Times opinion piece like about Pornhub. And it's and it, in a part of it, it's specifically calling out Canada because MindGeek, who owns Pornhub, is like the what would you call that? I was going to call it the mothership. I'm like, that's not what that is. But the, you know, the, the larger company that owns it is, is based in, in Montreal. And, and this writer uh, who wrote the piece, Nick Kristoff, talking about, you know, childhood sexual assault and exploitation. And, and for listeners, I have linked that article uh, if you want to read it, because Ali and I are going to get into discussing it. But I, and I don't normally put out disclaimers because I don't know what's going to trigger people. You don't know, right? Who knows what our experiences are. But I will say that this writer particularly uses really inflammatory language to get that strong, that that real like gut response to it. But you're like that outrage. So he's trying to tap into that. So talk to me about this op-ed and then we'll talk about the other article that kind of combats it. So why is it so problematic? Yeah, so there is so much there, and I'll try really hard to keep it on the shorter side, but I'm going to zoom out a little bit. So I, I want to connect this to porn literacy. Mm-hmm. So like, if we as a society had porn literacy, and we talked about, you know, how porn is made, how it should be consumed, what is ethical porn, what are the terms that are politically correct and relevant to be using when talking about this work? that would equip any reader to read this article and get little um, red flags happening throughout the article. Because like you said, Nick Kristoff did an amazing job at pulling at your heartstrings, manipulating your gut, um, manipulating information to the benefit of the groups that you know wanted Pornhub obliterated and want sex work obliterated. And so it's hard to unpack, even for me reading it as someone who knows so much about sex, so much about porn. I've worked for Pornhub in MindGeek in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it took me days to unpack all the different ways Nick Kristoff was manipulating the audience. And so if I can't even figure it out unless I like do a deeper dive, how is anyone going to figure it out? Mm-hmm. So some of these red flags that I'll point out, I'll just define because we're going to start talking about them and I want to use the appropriate terms for them, but I don't think these are terms maybe your listener has heard before, um, or maybe they have and that's amazing too. So a big part of this article is about child porn. Child porn is not a politically correct term that people use in and outside the industry. The correct term we would use is child sexual abuse materials, CSAM for short. Um, so Nick Kristoff is, again, using terms that would be a, a porn literacy red flag. Like I'm reading something that's not, that has an agenda here. Mm-hmm. Another red flag term would be revenge porn. Revenge porn is a misogynistic, uh, victim blaming term. The fact that you could say that this person is getting revenged upon, like they've done something wrong to deserve that. When taking sexual images making a sex tape with your partner or a hookup, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing shameful with that. What's shameful is when people break your consent and break your boundaries and distribute those images or videos without your consent. Mm -hmm. So the appropriate term we would use in the industry would be sexual abuse materials or image-based sexual abuse materials. Um, These are longer words. It's much easier and quicker and people understand child porn and revenge porn right away what they mean. But I really challenge all of us to stop using these words. Mm -hmm. Um, 
porn, like I mentioned earlier, is inherently involves consent among consenting adults. So nothing that is violating consent in our book is porn. When we conflate these terms, when we conflate child sexual abuse materials and image-based sexual abuse with porn, we give the rights and the government the ability to police the entire industry, even though what's happening is completely different. What's happening on a porn set between consenting adults and what's happening when a 16-year-old boy is enacting violence on another peer are very different things happening. So we, the same laws and the same rules are not gonna apply to both of these situations. So this is a tactic of the conservative right, Christian right often to try to police the whole industry. And so they do this, we already know this. I mean, all these groups are anti-prostitution or full service sex work. So the way we see that sort of applied to all sex work is the difference between sex trafficking and sex work. This is a really big part of really big distinction for sex workers. Um, we all want there to be no sex trafficking. We all want there to be no image-based sexual abuse. We all agree on that, mm -hmm. um, which is why it's even more important for us to separate consensual things that are happening and violent things. Because when someone's sharing your images without your consent, that's about power. That's about consent. That is violence. That's not about sex. That's about shaming you. That's about controlling you. That's what abuse is. So that is very different than people going to work and eating their meal on set and putting their knee pads on. And, and the things that protect that population of porn performers is very different than what's going to protect people who are completely outside this industry and aren't able to aren't able to have power in these situations. So, so that's sort of like a zoomed out, just like example of how porn literacy can help us consume and read these articles with a critical eye and make sure that we're not being manipulated by, I don't think any of us wanna be manipulated by the Christian right. Like that's not gonna end us in sexual liberation. So that's sort of like a zoomed out photo, like image of what we're talking about. So Nick Kristoff really does talk about, um, you know, sort of, uh, profiles a few people whose lives have very probably really been ruined by Pornhub um, or by their image-based abuse materials being distributed on Pornhub and not able to be taken down. And, and so there's some complicated stuff here, right? So there's some good things in that article that I agree with. So um, for almost a decade, porn performers and porn companies have been begging, crying, screaming for Pornhub and other tube sites to only allow verified users to upload. Mm. So right now it's like a YouTube model, or I guess it was, where anyone could upload any content they want on Pornhub. But unlike YouTube, copyright infringement doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it does matter. I'm putting that in bunny quotes as in like, yes, you can, you can issue a DMCA takedown of copyright infringement, then like in a week it will come down. But at that point, it's usually been lifted off to like all the other tube sites. Pornhub, MindGeek, who owns like Pornhub, YouPorn, uh, RedTube, they own, you know, so many different sites. Um, they're one of many. So, so this policy change applies to all different types of tube sites. So, so having verified users upload, people in the porn industry forever have been like, that helps us protect our work and make money. And it helps protect from 
image-based sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So Nick Kristoff really kind of cuts out the historical context there of like where these arguments are coming from, who's been on the front lines arguing and screaming for these changes and really erases all that out. He does call for that. And we see the next day Pornhub implements those changes, which is something to celebrate. This is a huge, wonderful change towards the direction of equity and equality and respect for sex workers' labor and work as copyrighted materials that should not be stolen, just like music and movies can't be on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, Nick Kristoff also calls for all banks to stop working with Pornhub. And that's where things get really messy and violent really quickly. So not only is Nick Kristoff sort of focusing the article in funny ways. So I'll, I'll just give some like general numbers, but I would check the exact numbers down in, in the article linked below. But, you know, in the past three years, Facebook and Instagram have around 10 million cases of child sexual abuse materials taken off their site. Twitter has around 2 million, two and a half million taken down off their site. Pornhub has 118. And Nick Kristoff is like, how could this be? How did they get to this number? I can't figure it out. Maybe we're all just so used to watching children in porn, we don't even know. That's his thesis on it. I've been in this industry for almost 10 years. I've never seen children in porn ever in my life. So I don't think I'm desensitized to it. I think it just doesn't exist in the way they're trying to make you believe it exists. And then later it comes out like two days later that this report on Pornhub is done by a neutral third party organization, the leader in child sexual abuse materials online out of the UK. It's not a number that's coming internally from Pornhub. So him throwing up his hands and being like, how did we get here? I don't know, is he's leaving out factual information and the fact that like these are, these are accurate numbers that reflect what's going on and it's not Pornhub internally who's making these numbers up. Right. And, and part of that is that Porn is, as an industry, is heavily regulated for child pornography. I mean, we have to upload, we take photos with our performers. We verify their age maybe five different times in, in the porn process between taking photos of their IDs. They fill out specific contracts and forms around their age verification. And as a company, whether or not the performers are 18 or up or not, if you don't have this age verification contracts filled out, you can be fined and go to jail, even if you're not making you know, people, you're not filming people underage in your film. So there's, we have um, a lot of incentive to, to verify age and to, you know, keep things really strict and tight. But on top of that, the, the most bizarre part about this article is if we actually care about child sexual abuse materials, which we should yeah. care about, we should be focusing on Facebook, who is obviously the number one perpetuator of this kind of content online. So yeah. that entire part of the article I find bizarre and it just makes me sad because if you care about these things, like we should be focusing where we need to focus, which is Facebook who does unlimited evil things, is continuing to get away with doing an evil thing and scapegoating Pornhub and the porn industry to completely shoulder any responsibility for the fact that they have an epidemic happening on their platforms. But so it gets messy. Nick Kristoff calls for MasterCard and Visa to stop working with. Pornhub as a solution, then the next day or in the next coming days, MasterCard and Visa do exactly that. They pull out from processing payments on Pornhub. This doesn't, I mean, Pornhub makes money from advertisements. Pulling Visa and MasterCard doesn't really affect Pornhub. Like it does, but it's like, 
they're still going to be making their billions off their ads. It's an ad-based site. That's what makes it free. Yeah. Who People use credit cards on Pornhub to buy porn from independent creators. They use credit cards on Pornhub to pay for a premium subscription, which also just means more money in your pocket if you stream for free on that way. I mean, performers who are verified get paid for streams and views on these platforms. Um, so what happened was an entire population of sex workers just got cut off from the biggest platform to sell porn overnight in the middle of a global pandemic, where in most countries, or at least in America, I can speak to, have been cut off from access to unemployment specifically and um, small business relief during COVID. We were specifically written out, like it was like, you cannot sign this if you engage in sexual labor on our unemployment cards. So, so this is, this is, and they knew this was going to happen. So Nick Kristoff is sort of a mouthpiece for Exodus Cry or Trafficking Hub, which, you know, I highly recommend going to their website to see their conservative right-wing Christian group who believes in the end of sex work entirely. These aren't people who care about the safety and the ethics of the porn industry. That's not what they, that's what they're presenting themselves as. They're like, how do we make it better? They like, you know, rebranded for millennials. Like we're sex positive. We just want, we just want it to be better. That's not what they care about. And they knew that if they cut off credit cards, it was going to affect sex workers. It wasn't going to make a dent in Pornhub's net money that they're making every year. So, um, I mean, there's been interesting things after that. I believe that Bitcoin's biggest day ever in history was the day after Pornhub, Visa and MasterCard cut off Pornhub. So does that mean cryptocurrency can finally have its moment in the mainstream? Maybe. But does that mean that the violence that's going to happen from, from this payment discrimination, which, you know, in America specifically, we have so much payment discrimination against sex workers already. Like we don't have a public bank. Like we don't have the right to banking as sex workers. We don't have the right to not be discriminated against because of our work. And so we've been seeing bank accounts be shut down, PayPal, Cash App, Venmo shut down, even credit cards to use them in the porn industry has an about an 11% plus or minus processing fee. So, you know, if you add in all those numbers, if you're spending $10 on porn, you know, 12, 11, 12 cents goes to the payment processor, 30 cents go to taxes, and then to even host your video on these sites, on the three sites that let you be there. I mean, you're making a fraction of your dollar back um, just being in the adult industry alone. So we've already experienced banking discrimination and financial discrimination. This is on a next level. And I think the fear is if Visa and MasterCard are allowed to stop working with um, a porn company, what does that mean for the rest of the porn industry? Does that mean porn will be cut off entirely from Visa and MasterCard? What does that mean for sex workers? What does that mean for small businesses? And I think this is a point that's often missed is when we're often fighting porn, like Nick Kristoff is doing in this article, we only focus on women. Women are the only people exploited in porn. We don't talk about men. We don't talk about trans people. We don't talk about non-binary people. Like it's all women who are exploited. And so that's a really funny way to look at the industry to take away women's ability to consent and have bodily autonomy alone as a concept is crazy. It's not like the gay male in industry is coming under fire. So what we see when these policies or these changes happen, we think we're doing this like great thing, like celebrate Nick Kristoff, he's changing the porn industry, the New York Times, thank you. 
But who gets affected the most is not Pornhub. They're a monopoly. They're worth billions. They can do whatever they want. They're still going to run ads. Who's going to be affected is independent, small, queer, and trans companies. It's going to be the people like Afterglow who are trying to make alternative views and, and content to this mainstream content showing diverse bodies and sexualities and stories. Those are the people who go under. Those are the people who go out of business and can no longer afford making the content that we're making because we're not monopolies. We're not multi-billion dollar companies. So we actually empower these corporations, these monopolies to have even more of a monopoly. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't think about that when we're talking about ending porn. We don't think about all the other ways in which, you know, people who are making porn get affected. And, and most important, it affects sex workers and sex workers from this policy change. We're going to see a spike of homelessness. We're going to see a spike of food and housing insecurity. We're going to see, I mean, right now, Pornhub isn't accepting payments outside of cryptocurrency. And we don't know when people are going to be paid out again. This is such a marginalized industry, such a marginalized group and financial discrimination against sex workers does nothing nothing to solve child sexual abuse materials and it does nothing to solve image-based sexual abuse what we need to do is focus on facebook that's where we need to be putting our efforts so anyways uh that's that's my sort of long nick christoph trafficking hub exodus cry porn hub rant and i guess i will say the last thing i'll say is that Pornhub and mind geek is an incredibly problematic company it's so you could write 400 articles on all the ways that Pornhub does bad shit all the time. Mm. And that's the thing that's the most disappointing is that they completely miss the mark on what we need to be criticizing, what we need to be asking for, for accountability from Pornhub and MindGeek to make the industry a safer place. And if these people cared about making the industry a safer place, if they cared about women and sex workers, not being exploited by companies calling for payment discrimination. They knew that that was never going to solve anything. And they knew it was going to make the lives of the most vulnerable harder and more vulnerable to violence, exploitation and harm. Oh, there's so much to, uh, to unpack there, Ali. Like it's, it, I, I really appreciated a, that you, that you sent that to me and then we're like, you know, like this is, is, is really problematic. And I'm glad that you flagged that for me because then that was in my mind as I was reading it. Because as you said, if you didn't know, you'd be, yeah, you'd, it would tug on your heartstrings and you'd be like, all oh, of these poor women and girls. And there's kind of two, two main things that I kind of want to underpin there. And by Nick Kristoff very purposely not kind of concealing where he is getting this information from or if he gets information that actually is valid information as you said throwing up his hands being like where'd they get that number from and on multiple levels like as as a person as a sex educator as a woman but also I just and also as a researcher I'm like wow that is insanely unethical to not say where you got your your research from like that's something that's that's very important to me I'm like, okay but where is this from? And I think especially in the world right now where there's so there's so much um, kind of like that cloak and daggers. We don't really know where information is coming from and we are taught to think about it critically. And the fact that he's basically, as you said, the mouthpiece for these far-right Christian organizations and companies and things, it doesn't surprise me, A, that it's the focus on 
on women. Like women are the ones who are, oh, these, these poor women and girls who are having this experience. Because so much, and this is not to label all of Christianity in that way, but far-right fundamentalist Christians are based on misogyny. And they are based on, you know, anti-abortion laws, like anti-LGBTQ, you know, legislation, and just really making sure that the only sexuality that is sanctioned is one that is heterosexual in a monogamous, you know, marry union. And that's it. And we know that that is, that's not the reality for most people. And that if, if you're actually going to create a space where people can, have a choice, have some bodily autonomy, then those can't be the voices that are informing our lawmakers and our policymakers because you're just cutting off options for people. And and the other thing that I wanted to underpin, and I actually got, so this article I also have linked, the one that you sent me from uh, the New Republic, and it just, it just pisses me off. Like I read it and I just, I, what um, one of the performers, uh, Vex Ashley said, who is, is, uh, in, in the porn industry and as a performer, was talking about how, oh, great, you know, um, Pornhub is now making these changes. You know, they're kind of, they're restricting uh, users' ability to to upload these videos without, um, and it says in the article, without registering and uh, downloading videos, like, altogether. What they say is, whatever you think of them, this is a pretty major change. And yet, it's always fun to remember that the people who've been shouting about this forever, whose livelihoods have been pirated and incomes decimated for years, get ignored. But fucking Nick Kristoff writes one shitty op-ed and the walls, they fall immediately down just like that. I guess it was that easy. I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. And then knowing that, you know, Pornhub's like, oh, I guess we'll respond because it was on the New York Times. But then actually the action that they take perpetuates that cycle of decimating your ability to work and to make money like I oh there's so much here and and you know it it kind of ties into me like nothing can change in the porn industry until consumers start talking about and advocating for porn yeah so this porn silence and this sex silence we have affects the porn industry like yeah Pornhub knows they've they've been they know that this is the changes they need to make basically the change is that you have to verify your age and your identity to upload a video on Pornhub like great that's fucking one plus two equals three logic on how to fight these things right um and yet it took this random guy outside the industry in the New York Times to make any budge and yeah as a sex work activist and organizer this is incredibly frustrating And then in that, a mass amount of misinformation has just been spread about our industry, which ties into what we talked about in the beginning. More visibility means the fight against sex work and the fight against sex. This is a war on sex is what this is. This is the war on um, non-cis heteropatriarchal view and vision of family and sexuality. That's what this is at its core. And so we're seeing an increase in uptick in violence in in the christian right you know like exercising their their freedom of speech and so it's important to say that like yeah like sex workers we can talk about this stuff until the cows come home but Pornhub doesn't care about what we have to say as long as they can get away with exploiting and profiting off of our copyrighted content they're not going to change 
Um, even though no other platform like YouTube or Facebook could ever get away with profiting billions off of copyrighted material. Like no one else in any other industry could get away with what Pornhub is doing. And they've gotten away with it for years because no one in the mainstream cared. They, their logic from the consumer is all porn is bad. And so, and all these people are exploited. So I'm going to come in for my three minutes get off then your brain you know we know psychologically your brain you factors go down and all the shame comes back up after you climax and they get out they're like get get it off my computer slam the computer closed and they never want to think about it or touch it again and so this is part of why i'm like yeah we need that interview after you come to be like yeah meet these performers see them as whole people this is why consumers have to start being allies and accomplices and advocating for these changes and listening to porn performers and what we're talking about because we know our industry best we know consent and boundaries better than anyone like we show up to work every day and talk about consent boundaries ethics like all of this stuff sexuality sexual liberation and so I think it's a call for, for the community to say like, we need you to amplify our voices. We need you to amplify our stories. We need you to fight these big corporations who don't care about us because they're gonna keep getting away with it. Yeah. It's crazy Pornhub has gotten away with it for this long. So it is a call to talk about sex. It's a call to talk about porn. It's it's part of our human rights that we have to advocate for. And I think that's why being in this conversation is, is so important. Like what would policy look like if they were just like, okay, porn, you guys can't do tube sites anymore. Like you can't just have non-verified people upload videos. Mm -hmm what would that look like and who would get that across to politicians and political leaders? Like that's gonna be everyone. Sex work is just such a small population. Like we don't have the voice or the power to get there without you. We need you guys who are watching porn, who are jerking off to porn, who hate porn. I don't care, like come join us to make the world a better and safer place for everyone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I feel like that's, th that, perfect thing to kind of to leave people on too, though right is to just say you need to be an ally and I think that's a part I mean you've 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 just hit the nail exactly on the head like that's what my hope is in a, in a very small way with this podcast is to be that because in many ways I represent a very like powerful status quo you know I'm, I'm an academic I'm a white cis woman and I'm, you know middle class in Canada, I have all sorts of privilege and access to people in power that if I can start holding space and I and I think about the term holding space like every day, but if I can hold space to say we need to honor and listen to the stories of sex workers and if they are saying that this is what needs to happen, then you have to trust them as professionals in their field to know that that's what needs to happen. So we all need to be allies in that if we're going to make a more sex positive world if we're going to make a safer world for people and actually honor people for the work that they do that you know like 99 percent of us are getting off on that's what we need to be doing uh is there anything any other like final like tidbit you want to leave people with there's so much ali i i've really enjoyed talking to you 
Yeah, I think the final thing, and I've, I've enjoyed being here too. Like, thank you so much for having me and for starting these conversations. They're so important for us to have. And I hope this conversation illuminates why they're so important to have. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's so much more to dive into on porn literacy and porn culture and sex work policy and law. But I think sort of the theme of this conversation for me and my final takeaway for your audience would be you know, listen to performers, follow them on social media, amplify their voices, because not only seeing them as whole complex human beings will change the way you view and engage with porn and shame forever, um, but they'll tell you what performers and companies have harmed them. They will tell you what policies are affecting them, and they will tell you how to give back to the community. So when we kind of like link this back to even our ethical porn conversation, like how do we find ethical porn? Like I wish I could say this site, this site, and this site, this is your guaranteed ethical porn, but it's so much more complicated than that. It's important for us to listen to the people who are like, these companies are doing shady shit. Or these companies are feeding me and giving me knee pads and paying me equitably for my time and have every all their crew on set be treating me like a whole person with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, these people outed me or these people crossed, this performer crossed my boundaries on set and it wasn't okay. So I think that is like the best plug into sort of the politics and the ethics and all of that is just like, listen to performers and like literally just follow them on social media if we're still allowed on there and really yeah chase chase those stories to the source and you're gonna learn so much from them your whole world is gonna explode open i know mine has only gotten better and my road to sexual liberation has only expanded by following all these different amazing voices and learning about nuances and complexities in this industry that five years ago I wouldn't even be able to speak on. So I have to thank my community for that. And I hope that you all are able to, yeah, start engaging more with these individuals and these people who are really leading the work towards sexual liberation for everyone. Yeah, that's great, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm sharing an interview that myself and one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Charlotte Lopi, did with the University of Victoria's Consent Advocates and Relationship Educators program. We talk all about consent and sex positivity, and I'm really excited to share that with you on the next episode. As always, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. I want to hear your questions. I want to hear your voice on the podcast. So don't hesitate to get in touch. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.